You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. For those who have been listening to this program for the last several weeks, if not month or so, you know that we have sort of veered away from directly issue, issuing statements or comments or descriptions about healthcare, and we've instead focused on the general level of government ideology, the conflicts we have about race, and the Biden administration's push towards more socialism. I want to get back to this same message that we've been talking about, and that is about government. A little bit of a history lesson about how our country was founded. It wasn't founded on the 619 project that's being pushed in our schools around racism, that we are a racist country. On the contrary, this country was founded mostly for religious freedoms. And our constitution was anti-slavery, anti-racist. Our founding fathers were smart enough to establish a structure of government, a constitution and a declaration of independence that has held up now for more than 200 years. And it allowed for the flexibility of us moving towards more perfect union. Were we perfect at the beginning? No, we were part of a world that wasn't perfect. We were part of a world that had slavery and had autocrats and dictators and warring factions. But we established a government through our founding fathers that was able to address these kinds of issues to create that more perfect union as they described. So I want to talk today in this hour with one of my favorite people, um, Professor David Barton, who brings an enormous level of understanding, of skill, of expertise, of knowledge, of original documents to describe how faith has played such a major part in our government that God and good government go hand in hand, but we have strayed away from that. So David, give us some of your initial thoughts on how we should recognize that original root that we have in faith and how government is of good men, of good character, not just of the written word. We're expecting that everybody is going to be able to apply laws equally. But tell us about your feeling about the providence, if you will, the promise of this land that was established through a faith-based governmental structure. God has indeed blessed America. Over the last 200 years, under his guidance, America has risen to levels and achievements attained by few other nations in the history of the world. Yet notice how we've responded to him in recent years. Ironically, in a nation once distinguished for its faith and made great by its people of faith, public expressions of that traditional faith are now viewed as a threat to government. Well, you've got that right. Our courts have really made some very poor decisions that have driven us away from that original founding on faith. That so much of our early founding fathers, our early educational systems, our early laws were really built around the Judeo-Christian concepts of how to interact with each other, how to have a self-governing system. So tell us a little bit more about some of the court decisions that point to our veering away from the way we really were originally founded. This is nowhere more evident than in our courts. 
For example, in the case Warsaw versus Tehachapi, a federal court ruled that it was unconstitutional for a public cemetery to have a planter in the shape of a cross. For, as the court explained, if someone were to view that cross, it could cause emotional distress and thus constitute injury in fact. In the case Roberts versus Madigan, a federal court first ruled that a teacher at school could not be seen publicly with his own personal copy of the Bible, and then ruled that a classroom library containing 237 books must remove the two books from the library which dealt with Christianity. In the case Alexander versus Nacogdoches School District, an anti-drug speaker with the National Drug Czar's office was prohibited by a federal court from delivering his anti-drug message to the students in Nacogdoches, Texas School District. The reason? The judge pointed out that the speaker was also known as a Christian minister and thus was disqualified from delivering a secular anti-drug message that he'd already delivered to over 3 million students at thousands of public schools. Well, I know it's not politically correct to talk about good government in the Bible these days, but can you give us some quotes or passages of the Bible that talk about good government and what good government really is responsible for? If one examines 1 Timothy 1, 1 Peter 2, Romans 13, or a number of other scriptures, God makes it clear that the purpose of government is to reward the righteous and to punish the wicked. So how do we achieve good government? What are some of the biblical lessons that we should know in order to achieve good government? What are some of the differing opinions about that? The means of securing good government has been debated in America for over three centuries with differing conclusions on how to achieve it. For example, in the 1660s, when the people of Carolina were drafting their first state constitution, they sought help from political philosopher John Locke. Locke authored their 1669 constitution in the belief that good government would be secured through the enactment of good laws. Locke reasoned that if righteous laws were in the Constitution, then no matter who was placed into office, he would always be bound by those righteous laws. So that's approach number one, that good laws implemented would require future men or women to act under those laws, and we would have good government. What's the second approach or another approach that you've seen in history? William Penn applied a dramatically different philosophy at about the same time when he established the government of Pennsylvania. While Penn did believe that good laws were necessary, he did not believe that a long state constitution filled with righteous laws would be the means of securing good government. Penn understood that something more than good laws was necessary. He explained, governments, like clocks, go from the motion men give them. Wherefore, governments rather depend upon men than men upon governments. Let men be good, and the government cannot be bad. But if men be bad, the government will never be good. So William Penn, the founder of the state of Pennsylvania, then really believed that men would make a difference, that good-hearted men, good honest men, good Christian men, good men of faith would be the real key, not the laws themselves. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Penn understood that the quality of government depended not upon the goodness found in laws, but rather upon the goodness found in leaders. Penn continued, I know some say, let us have good laws and no matter for the men that execute them, but let them consider that though good laws do well, good men do better. For good laws may lack good men, but good men will never lack good laws nor allow bad ones. So, Professor Barton, give us some examples how even if you have a good law, a well-intended law, to try to get people to do the right thing or to not do the bad thing, give us some examples around how even if we have good laws, 
you, they're not necessarily going to be followed. Wicked people simply do not obey righteous laws. It is not in their nature to do so. Else, America would have no murder or no theft. For we have laws which prohibit both. Conversely, good people in office not only obey good laws, they will not allow bad ones. Again, I know it's not politically correct to bring in faith and religion into our politics, but that's what we're talking about today, this history that's been forgotten, that's almost been forbidden to be talked about. We've eliminated it and erased it so much in our current culture, but I want to talk about it, even if it's not politically correct. Tell us more about how the, the Bible might address this idea of good men rather than just good laws. Penn's approach is proven true not only by history, but by the scriptures as well. Notice Proverbs 29.2. God declares, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. The key to good government is found in the quality of the people who rule, not in the quality of the laws which are passed. Okay, so take us back to our founding fathers' belief and how they thought good government really should be set up. Is it good laws, good men, some combination of that? What happened with our founding fathers as they established this country? Our founding fathers, by and large, understood this. Consequently, it is not surprising that their first governments reflected the Proverbs 29-2 approach. On the day they signed the Declaration of Independence, the founding fathers underwent an immediate transformation. Because the day before, every one of them had been a British citizen living in a British colony with 13 crown-appointed British state governments. However, when they signed that document and separated from Great Britain, they lost all of their state governments. Consequently, they returned home to their states and began to create new state constitutions. Samuel Adams helped write the Massachusetts Constitution. Benjamin Rush and James Wilson helped write Pennsylvania's Constitution. George Reed and Thomas McKean helped write Delaware's Constitution. The same was true in other states as well. So what you're saying is um, that following our Constitution and the basis of our Constitution, which was providence, faith, God, Christianity, all the principles of good governing, of working citizens, working with other citizens, that was then went down from the... In Bill, Bill of Rights, the Independence, the Constitution, all that that was established by our founding fathers, they went back then and started creating state constitutions. What did the Supreme Court that was set up under the federal structure uh, say about these state constitutions? The Supreme Court formally pointed to these state constitutions as precedents to demonstrate the founders' intent. Notice, for example, what Thomas McKean and George Reed placed in the Delaware Constitution. Everyone elected or appointed to office shall make and subscribe the following declaration, to wit, I do profess faith in God the Father, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, and in the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forevermore, and I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. While today we wish this were the requirement for seminary, it was their requirement for politics. Yet notice their emphasis. The focus is on the type of individuals placed into office, not on the type of laws. So if the emphasis was more on men than on laws and having to list out all the laws that you what the do's and you don'ts and the can and the can'ts, what did these state constitutions look like that were written by the founding fathers? The average constitution written by the founding fathers was a mere five pages in length, a very short document 
because the emphasis was on the type of person placed in office rather than on the type of laws. So, Professor Barden, what kind of language did they put into these state constitutions that focused an emphasis on the character of elected officials? For example, the Pennsylvania Constitution, authored by Benjamin Rush and James Wilson, declared, Each member of the legislature, before he takes his seat, shall make and subscribe the following declaration, I do believe in one God, the creator and governor of the universe, the rewarder of the good and the punisher of the wicked, and I do acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. The Constitution of Massachusetts, authored by Samuel Adams, the father of the American Revolution, stated, All persons elected must make and subscribe the following declaration. I do declare that I believe the Christian religion and have firm persuasion of its truth. North Carolina's Constitution required that no person who shall deny the being of God or the truth of the Christian religion or the divine authority either of the Old or New Testaments or who shall hold religious principles incompatible with the freedom and safety of the state shall be capable of holding any office or place of trust or profit in the civil department within this state. What a powerful declaration. Wow, what a powerful voice and powerful history that you bring forth that I certainly never learned in school, and I doubt that many other people have learned about the interconnection of faith and our founding fathers in establishing our Constitution to be run as a country that was designed and developed and allowed to exist with godly providence. Let's take a quick break, and we're going to come back and continue with this idea of God and good government. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio, and this is Healthcare Insight. But we're talking about more than healthcare. We're talking about our history, how this country was founded, and how we've gotten away from the basic principles that would even allow us to talk about healthcare. Our freedoms are being attacked, socialism is on the rise, and how in the world can you get to private free market healthcare unless we go back and try to reestablish our thinking and understanding about the founding principles of this country. And so today I'm talking to Professor David Barton, who is giving us some tremendous insight into the history and our founding fathers' belief around how faith and good government go hand in hand. And I want to get back to that, uh, Professor Barton. Would you tell us about how the Supreme Court, as an example, uh, felt about this as it was being structured and the rulings of the original Supreme Court were taking hold to create the foundation of our country. 
I know we've moved away from some of those early decisions and we've kind of forgotten about them and we've ignored them from the historical perspective. But give us more background because I'm really excited to find out and know what was really happening back during those founding years. This belief of the importance of God-fearing leaders was so well understood in America that in 1892, the Supreme Court pointed out that of the 44 states that were then in the Union, each had some type of God-centered declaration in its constitution. Our founding fathers went to great lengths to ensure that we never forgot the principles of sound government. As many of them grew older, they realized that when they died, America would also die and go to the grave with them unless they were able to transmit to subsequent generations the principles upon which they had built America's government. So now, 140 years later, we've kind of lost our way. How did the Founding Fathers think that they could pass on their beliefs and good government and how things should be structured and how to carry on um, the way they had established and envisioned this world and carry on the faith-based concepts of self-government. What did they do uh, before they passed away? Many Founding Fathers became intimately involved with education. In fact, so important was education to the Founding Fathers that in the ten years following the American Revolution, more colleges were established in America than in the 150 years preceding the Revolution. Noah Webster was one of the many Founding Fathers who became an educator. Webster not only served as a soldier during the Revolution, he also served as a legislator in two states after the Revolution. Additionally, he was the first Founding Father to call for a Constitutional Convention, and he was personally responsible for Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. As an educator, Noah Webster helped establish Amherst College and became one of the most prolific textbook writers of any of the Founding Fathers. One of his texts, used in American public school classrooms for generations, was his History of the United States. In it, he told students, When you become entitled to exercise the right of voting for public officers, let it be impressed on your mind that God commands you to choose for rulers just men who will rule in the fear of God. The preservation of our government depends on the faithful discharge of this duty. If the citizens neglect their duty and place unprincipled men in office, the government will soon be corrupted. Laws will be made, not for the public good so much as for selfish or local purposes. Corrupt or incompetent men will be appointed to execute the laws. The public revenues will be squandered on unworthy men, and the rights of the citizens will be violated or disregarded. Boy, that does sound like what's going on in the United States today with uh, enormous spending on pork barrel projects, on the uh, corruption of what's going on in the government, the swamp as it's called, all the corruption and the outside influences that have come in that are more socialistic, Marxist, even communist, that are being placed in our government by people who are elected through what many feel are fraudulent uh, claims of ways that votes were pulled and counted uh, inappropriately. Some think it's a conspiracy theory, but there were clearly changes that were made that were not constitutional, and nobody really knows what happened because it gets so hidden in the secrecy of the ballot. So I'm not saying that there were inappropriate elections, that the elections would have been the same regardless, but there were clearly flaws in the election because there are flaws in men. That's what's been going on. Now, did our founding fathers experience this firsthand, or were they just so prescient of knowing and understanding and warning us about what could happen in the future that many of us are living in right now? 
While his description of the ills of government sounds like an excerpt from yesterday's newspaper, this was not going on in their day. It was simply a warning of what would happen if ungodly men were placed into office. Webster then concluded, If our government fails to secure public prosperity and happiness, it must be because the citizens neglect the divine commands and elect bad men to make and administer the laws. Although Noah Webster taught students that our form of government could not survive unless we kept godly, God-fearing people of faith in office. So, Dr. Barton, the swarm of government that was set up by our founding fathers relies on good people in office. The other complication that somehow gets confused is whether we're a democracy or a republic. Tell us your thoughts on that and what the founding fathers really intended this country to be. In a democracy, aren't the people the most important aspect? This is part of our problem today. We think we're a democracy. We're not. Recall, when we pledge allegiance to the flag, we pledge allegiance to the Republic of the United States, not the democracy of the United States. While few today can define the difference between the two, there is a difference, a big difference. Our founding fathers had an opportunity to establish a democracy, and they chose not to. They specifically chose to establish a republic. In their minds, we were not and were never to become a democracy. Founding Father Fisher Ames declared, A democracy is a volcano which conceals the fiery materials of its own destruction. These will produce an eruption and carry desolation in their way. Founding Father Benjamin Rush was equally pointed. He noted, A simple democracy is the devil's own government. Founding Father John Adams stated, Remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. So strongly did the founders oppose a democracy that when they created the Constitution, they included a provision to keep America from becoming a democracy. Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution requires that each state maintain a republican form of government. A republican form of government as opposed to a democratic one. That is, to be a republic, not a democracy. Okay, Professor Barton, now that you've given us those examples and talked about the differences, give us a more clear definition and explanation. What is the difference between a democracy and a republic? Noah Webster explained that difference. He told students, Our citizens should early understand that the genuine source of correct republican principles is the Bible, particularly the New Testament or the Christian religion. The difference between a republic and a democracy is the source of its authority. In a democracy, Whatever the people desire is what becomes policy. If a majority of the people decide that murder is no longer a crime, in a democracy, murder will no longer be a crime. However, not so in our republic. In our republic, murder will always be a crime, for murder is always a crime in the word of God. It is this foundation which has given our republic such enduring stability, for since man does not change, he continues to need the same restraints he has always needed. It is the rights and wrongs revealed in the Bible which have provided those guidelines for our republic. Wow, what a great and clear, very well-articulated explanation of the differences between a democracy and a republic. It's who actually is in control, the people or God, because if people are in control, as you said, leaders will emerge that are not godly, and democracy has as its seed its own destruction. That's why our founding fathers set up a republic. But tell me one more thing. If they set up the republic and people are supposed to be 
godly leaders within that republic recognizing that the power for rights and privileges comes from God, did our legal books, our legal teachings at the time also reinforce that so that that was the basis of learning about good government as we move forward? Tell us a little bit about the textbook and the legal books back then. Our early law books taught this. For example, consider Blackstone's commentaries on the laws. Its principles formed the basis of American law from 1766 until 1920, and it was the final authority in the U.S. Supreme Court. Blackstone's was recommended highly by numerous famous Americans, including James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, James Wilson, John Marshall, Charles Finney, and Abraham Lincoln. This law book taught that our laws could not contradict God's direct decrees. However, if God had not ruled in an area, then we were free to set our own policy. It gave an example. To instance, in the case of murder, this is expressly forbidden by the divine. If any human law should allow or enjoin us to commit it, we are bound to transgress that human law. But, with regard to matters that are not commanded or forbidden by the scriptures, such, for instance, as exporting of wool into foreign countries, here the legislature has scope and opportunity to interpose. Since the basis of our republic is God's standards, the only way to preserve the nation's foundation is to place into office individuals who understand that foundation. It is for this reason that a republic is a much more difficult form of government to maintain, for it requires much more effort from the voters. They must investigate the views of candidates before placing them into office. As John Adams explained, we electors have an important constitutional power placed in our hands. We have a check upon two branches of the legislature. It becomes necessary to every citizen, then, to be in some degree a statesman, and to examine and judge for himself the political principles and measures. Let us examine them with a sober Christian spirit. A democracy is simply the deterioration of a republic. It is a lazy man's form of government. It requires no effort and no research of candidates or long-term issues. It is simply based on what a majority of the people feel at that given time. A democracy is what founding father Benjamin Rush called a mobocracy. Well, Professor Barton, as you've told us before, Benjamin Rush, one of the founding fathers, did a lot of great things in establishing the principles, the legal principles, the faith-based principles of this country. He served in multiple early um, administrations and was an educator himself. Give us some more of his words of wisdom about a republic and the importance of faith to maintain a republic. Benjamin Rush understood that if our people ever lost their knowledge of the Bible and of its rights and wrongs, then we would lose our republic. He warned, the only means of establishing and perpetuating our republican forms of government is the universal education of our youth in the principles of Christianity by means of the Bible. The founding fathers knew that the only firm basis for our American republic was what we today term the Judeo-Christian ethic. However, America today, by and large, has forgotten these principles and has moved away from what the founders themselves taught us. And yet this seems amazing when one considers the links to which our founders went to ensure that we would always know and understand the principles necessary to maintain good government. How did we forget? How did we move away from their teachings? Well, let me interrupt you right there, David, because you just asked the most important question for any of us today. How did we move away from the type of government that was set up by our founding fathers, who tried so hard to inculcate all that education and training 
and the principles of good government into our legal structure, into our documents, into the education of our children. I want to come back and really hit on that in the next segment. So, folks out there, if you'll just hang with us, we're going to come right back and get more information from Professor David Barton on the founding principles of our government and what we can do now to sort of reinvigorate that thinking to get back to our basic principles. We'll be right back after this commercial message. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Now, those of you who have been listening so far know that we are not talking about healthcare directly. What we're talking about now is the basic fundamentals and principles of this country, because while this program was founded on, this whole series about health care and health insurance was founded on the idea of free markets, We can't get to free markets. We are so far away from this with this Biden administration that we need to go back and say, how did we get here? How did we get so far away from the founding principles of our government that was established by our founding fathers? That foundation included good government, good men of faith, and a practice of Judeo-Christian values, not being a theocracy, not being a Christian country. That's why we have that in the First Amendment that the government cannot establish a religion. That doesn't mean separation of church and state that we've talked about in this broadcast and others. It simply means that we're not going to establish a theocracy. Our founding fathers did not want a theocracy. They wanted the freedom of religion. But they also wanted the basic principles the Judeo-Christian religion to be built into our country, into our Constitution, into our founding documents, and that anybody that followed this, regardless of what their religion was, if they at least understood and followed the basic principles, we would not get so far away from those basic principles. But we have. We've gotten away from what our founding fathers established this country on. Most of them came over here. Most of the states were established on the basis of religious freedom. And that was built in, as we've heard earlier in this hour, was built into state constitutions as well as our federal constitution. So now the question is, how do we get back to that? How do we return to that? And what happened to get us so far away? We've already identified 
Professor Barton, that somewhere around 1920, this country made a change. What happened at that point to create that change? What individual or individuals or groups were involved that had us change so dramatically away from our founding fathers, and that was their worst fear? So tell us a little bit about what happened. The movement away from the founders' principles came as a result of new teachings widely disseminated near the turn of the 20th century by men like Colonel Robert Ingersoll, one of America's first openly avowed and proudly self-proclaimed militant secular humanist. He aggressively attacked both Judaism and Christianity in order to remove the Judeo-Christian ethic from America. He wanted a new religion. As he explained, we are laying the foundations of the grand temple of the future, wherein will be celebrated the religion of humanity. We are looking for the time when reason Throned upon the world's brain shall be the king of kings and god of gods. Ingersoll advanced two teachings to help accomplish his self-proclaimed goal. The teachings of compartmentalization and of ignoring a candidate's private life. Tragically, these teachings were gradually accepted by much of the God-fearing community. Concerning private life and beliefs, Ingersoll declared, The religious views of a candidate should be kept entirely out of sight. All these things are private and personal. The move to divorce one's private life from his public office, a novel idea at the time Ingersoll advanced it, is today widely embraced. Over recent decades, the acceptance of that teaching has been the dividing line in much of the public debate over a candidate. Today, many argue that what he does in his private life has no bearing on his professional public qualifications and that a candidate's private life should be kept totally separate from his race for an office. However, that teaching controverts what was taught in America's classroom for decades. Well, Professor Barton, you've hit the nail on the head. We have seen that certainly during my long lifetime, whether it's been Republican or Democrat, that the character that should be so important has been dismissed. Whether you go back to uh, uh, Gary Hart and his infidelities, whether you go to uh, John Kennedy and the press ignoring that, the public didn't know. You go back to FDR and the issues that he had and um, the infidelities he had uh, against Eleanor. And you go to even present day where you have a Donald Trump who had three marriages that had a number of affairs outside. You know, the only saving grace for that, if you're on the Republican side, might be that he found religion and asked for forgiveness and he was probably the most Christian type of leader we had in terms of his policies of accepting um, uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, of recognizing the Golan Heights as part of of um, uh, Israel. Um, so he had his flaws. Was he of the best character? No. Did he have policies that represented the Judeo-Christian values and the values of the Constitution? Many would say yes. But we also have a president now that can't even take communion because he believes in a woman's right to choose, which is another way of saying he believes in abortion and the killing of young babies uh, before they exit the mother's womb. And so that's not that's not saving lives or recognizing Judeo-Christian values since our founding fathers, the very first thing that they put into our Declaration of Independence was life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life was first because that's the most critical. 
and we've killed in this country under the ruling of the Supreme Court and under the watch of so many Republicans and Democrats, the killing of probably at least 66 million is the estimate that I've heard of unborn babies. So character was set as critical, private lives, religious views were set up originally to be part of our culture and our governing documents and incumbent upon voters to recognize those values in candidates or our republic would surely die. And that certainly seems to be what's happening today. Give us a little bit more background on your thoughts relative to what's going on today. This textbook taught students that they must always examine the private life and character of a leader. It explained, public character is no evidence of true greatness, for a public character is often an artificial one. We all know this to be true. We know that we can put on a front so that who we are in public is not who we really are. The textbook continued, it is not then in the glare of public, but in the shade of private life that we are to look for the man. Private life is always real life. Behind the curtain, where the eyes of the million are not upon him, there he will always be sure to act himself. Consequently, if he act greatly in private, he must be great indeed. Hence, it has been justly said that our private deeds, if noble, are noblest of our lives. It is the private virtues that lay the foundation of all human excellence. Our textbooks taught us to examine the private life. So, Professor Martin, staying back in the time of our founding fathers, I understand from your previous presentations that one of the founding fathers, John Witherspoon, was instrumental in teaching others how to be good leaders, how to follow certain basic principles. Tell us a little bit more about this great man, John Witherspoon, and what he did to help establish the common belief and understanding and the education around those basic principles that established our founding documents. Tell us about John Witherspoon, please. Witherspoon was a signer of the Declaration and served on over 100 different committees in Congress. Furthermore, he was the president of Princeton University and is rightly considered the educational father of many founding fathers, for he personally trained 87 of them, including one president, one vice president, three Supreme Court justices, 10 cabinet members, 12 governors, 21 senators, and 39 congressmen. And this list does not include the numerous individuals that he trained for state, local, and municipal offices. What did this prominent founding father teach, which caused so many to rise to high levels of statesmanship and leadership? John Witherspoon taught three basic components of American patriotism. He taught that he is the best friend to American liberty, first, who is the most sincere and active in promoting true and undefiled religion, and, second, who sets himself with the greatest firmness to bear down profanity and immorality of every kind, and, third, whoever is an avowed enemy of God, I scruple not, or I hesitate not, to call him an enemy to his country. Witherspoon taught that the first characteristic of an American patriot, an American leader, was that he be an active and sincere promoter of true and undefiled religion. His second requirement was that he must sit himself with the greatest firmness to bear down profanity and immorality of every kind. Now, why would that be a characteristic of a leader? Because if you understood self-government, you knew that if the people were profane and immoral, then the government would be profane and immoral. And history proves that profane and immoral governments do not endure. Therefore, if you loved your country and its form of government, you would bear down on profanity and immorality. Finally, John Witherspoon explained that whoever was an avowed enemy of God was an enemy to his country. Why? Recall, we were established as a republic, firmly built on the principles of God's word. If an individual opposed what God stood for, he opposed the very foundation on which America had been built. How then? 
could he be a true patriot? Notice that of Witherspoon's three characteristics of an American patriot, two of them focused on private life, private religious life and private moral life. Private life was very important to the founders, and the school textbooks derived their teachings on private life from the founding fathers' teachings on private life. So going one step further from that, where did Witherspoon and others derive their concepts of good leadership and good government? Where did our founding fathers get this idea that character matters? Their teachings were derived from teachings in the Bible. For example, Matthew 7, verses 16 through 20. In this passage, Jesus explained that if the root was corrupt, then the fruit would also be corrupt, that grapes could not be picked from briars or figs from thistles. Yet many today absolutely refuse to consider one's roots. They want to ignore the roots and simply hope that the one that they elect will somehow have good fruit. If you want to know if there will be good fruit, then examine the roots. According to John Adams, it was the presence of moral and religious beliefs which distinguished a statesman, of which we seem to have too few, from a politician, of which we seem to have too many. In his diary entry for February the 9th, 1772, Adams defined a politician as someone who would compromise his principles in order to advance, whether with his party, his constituents, or a powerful committee head, or whatever. However, a statesman would not compromise principles, regardless of what it might cost him. But what made the difference between the two? According to Adams, a statesman embraced the biblical conviction of the reality of future rewards and punishments. That is, he realized that he must stand before God and account to him for his behavior while in office. The awareness of this unescapable truth served as a restraint on personal misbehavior, something especially important for an office holder. For although we call them public officials, most of what they do in their official capacities actually occurs in private. If there is no self-imposed restraint on a public official's private behavior, then that public official is a danger to good government because of the compromises that he will make while removed from the watchful eye of the citizenry. And I might add, under the swamp that hides things, under the cut cutting of deals that goes on under the earmarks that nobody knows about, under bills that you uh, have to pass before you can read them, all the shenanigans that goes on with today's dark money and dark campaigns and shedding, sharing of, uh, in, of falsities. There's too much fake news that's going around. All that means that we have gotten so far away from our founding fathers well, let's take another break, and we'll come back for a final session. I hope our audience is finding this as fascinating as I do in learning our history of our founding fathers and how they wanted this country uh, to exist uh, for all time, but we have so far gotten away from their principles. We need to recognize it and hopefully get back to it at some point. Take a quick break. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right, and you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Let's continue with Professor Barton, who is telling us about the history of faith and government and how good character and a belief that there is something bigger and beyond us, a God that um, has established this country through providence, um, following Judeo-Christian values, not that you're a Christian or you're uh, of the Jewish faith, but that you understand those basic principles for self-governing a republic as was established by our founding fathers. We have gotten so far away from that. I want to spend this last segment getting back to that importance of having good moral leadership in our country and in our president and in those leaders in Congress. So, Professor Barden, give us a little bit more about this important aspect of morality and character. Having godly leadership was essential to our early leaders. Consequently, Noah Webster instructed students, in selecting men for office, let principle be your guide. Regard not the particular sect or denomination of the candidate. Look to his character. It is alleged by men of loose principles or defective views of the subject that religion and morality are not necessary or important qualifications for public stations. Webster noted that those who advocate that religion and morality are not important for political office, they fall into one of two categories. Either they themselves have loose principles or they have defective views of the subject. Webster continued, The scriptures teach a different doctrine. They direct that rulers should be men who rule in the fear of God, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Now that may seem like a strong set of qualifications for office holders, but those qualifications did not come from Noah Webster. They came from God. Webster simply quoted that section verbatim from the Bible. Those were the qualifications first set forth after Moses was visited by his father-in-law Jethro. Jethro recommended that Moses should not continue to be the only ruler and judge over the massive number of people. Moses agreed and told the people to choose out from among them rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. In other words, they were to have elections for the federal, the thousands, the state, the hundreds, the county, the fifties, and the local, the tens. They were instructed to select rulers who would rule in the fear of God, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Elected officials like Noah Webster reminded the people of their God-given duties, and ministers of the gospel were faithful to do the same. Okay, so what you're telling us is back then, politics and religion really mixed. It was um, uh, a double-handed approach to actually establishing good government that Unlike today, where we talk about separation of church and state, you can't talk about a religion and politics is sort of the way we divide it in the public forum. But in reality, they were discussed together. And in fact, you had religious leaders that were supporting the same concept that people who rule over should be following biblical principles. Can you give us a few examples and maybe name some names as to how this religious overlay of government officials and the recommendations of how to vote and how to judge character were actually playing out with the um, religious leaders of the day. For example, the Reverend Matthias Burnett utilized the same text in his 1803 sermon at the Connecticut Capitol building. Look well to the characters and qualifications of those you elect and raise to office in places of trust. Let the wise counsel of Jethro be your guide. 
Choose ye out from among you, able men, such as fear God, men of truth and hating covetousness, and set them to rule over you. Similarly, the Reverend Chandler Robbins used the same scripture in a 1791 sermon delivered in the Massachusetts Capitol building before Governor John Hancock, Lieutenant Governor Samuel Adams, and the Massachusetts legislature, a sermon delivered at their request. He said, How constantly do we find it inculcated in the sacred writings that rulers be just men, fearers of God, haters of covetousness, that they shake their hands from holding bribes, because a gift blindeth the eyes of the wise and perverteth the words of the righteous. Noah Webster then summarized why we should heed the requirements for officeholders which God had set forth. He noted, It is to the neglect of this rule of conduct in our citizens, that is not selecting godly men for office directed by the scriptures, that we must ascribe the multiplied frauds, the breaches of trust, peculations and embezzlements of public property, which astonish even ourselves, which tarnish the character of our country, which disgrace a republican government. Then notice how strongly Webster concluded. He said, When a citizen gives his suffrage, or his vote, to a man of known immorality, he abuses his trust, his civic responsibility. He sacrifices not only his own interest, but that of his neighbor. He betrays the interest of his country. This is strong. Webster said that if we knowingly help place an immoral person in office, we were a traitor to our country. Why? Because by installing immorality in office, we have installed the very thing that will destroy not only that office, but good government in general. Okay, so you talked about Ingersoll in our last um, segment of this program and how he had two basic ways that we should be changing our government, which actually move us away from being a, uh, a republic and move us more towards a democracy and move us away from God and faith in men. So you've talked about the importance of one of those two items, being sure we have men of faith, of good moral character. Now, the second thing he had was about compartmentalizing. Can you explain that and what's really been happening lately in our own country in current times that have been following the concepts of Ingersoll? The second destructive teaching which moved us away from the Founders' principles was that religion should be compartmentalized, that its influence and activities should be limited solely to the inside of the four walls of the church. Robert Ingersoll was also a leader in this teaching. He claimed, Our government should be kept entirely and purely secular. So our father said, We shall form a secular government. The Declaration of Independence denied the authority of any and all gods. They agreed that there should be only one religion, and that was the religion of patriotism. Our fathers founded the first secular government that was ever founded in the world. Clearly, the Declaration of Independence itself, as well as the numerous writings of the Founding Fathers, prove Ingersoll's claim to be totally false. Nevertheless, he had effectively introduced the concept that religious people and religious principles were to have nothing to do with government. He, and many others, began to teach the compartmentalization of religion, that is, placing religion and people of faith into compartments separate from public, educational, and governmental arenas. But Professor Barden, isn't that one of the problems that we have today, that the church, the church itself that was so important in the founding of this country and the spiritual strength behind our founding fathers, the educational system of teaching faith and morality to our children in the schools and universities back then, that the church has abandoned that prospect of being an influencer in this country? What do you have to say about that? 
Slowly, the church accepted the teaching of compartmentalization, and it began to extract itself from the position of moral conscience and ethical influence that it had exercised for decades. The church and people of faith have now so removed themselves from these disciplines that statistics now show that not only has voter turnout fallen dramatically over recent decades, but specifically that only half of the Christian community even voted in recent presidential elections. Removing ourselves from the civic, political arenas not only violates historical precedent, it also ignores what America's early spiritual leaders taught us. Charles Finney, a minister and a leader in America's Second Great Awakening in the early 1800s, warned us, Christians must vote for honest men and take consistent ground in politics. God cannot sustain this free and blessed country, which we love and pray for, unless the church will take right ground. The God-fearing religious community has not upheld its responsibilities as voters. Where we currently find ourselves is best expressed by President James A. Garfield, himself a Christian minister, who, on the centennial celebration of America, explained, Now, more than ever before, the people are responsible for the character of their Congress. If that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt, it's because the people tolerate ignorance, recklessness, and corruption. If we don't like what we have in Congress then it is simply a reflection of our own action or lack of action. So what I'm hearing you say, Professor Barton, is that when the general public and existing faith leaders remove themselves from the kind of selecting of faith-based moral leadership, that we can't expect anything other than immoral behavior and a movement away from the founding fathers. Can you give me some very specific examples of how that's happened today and who some of those leaders that have taken over that don't believe in faith and morality in the same way that our founding fathers did. Uh, How did all that happen and who was involved? Discouraging the involvement of people of faith in public arenas has not only caused a change in the quality of our leaders, it's also resulted in a change in their philosophy. And logically so, for when God-fearing individuals remove themselves from an arena, their values depart with them. And when ungodly individuals enter an arena, their values enter with them. After decades of the extraction of godly individuals and thus godly principles from public affairs, the change in philosophy became apparent in our national leaders, especially the U.S. Supreme Court. Consider, for example, the issue of school prayer and the public acknowledgement of God. School prayer had been practiced in America's public schools for 300-plus years, and it had been constitutional for 171 consecutive years under the Constitution. Why? Because school prayer had been constitutional in the personal beliefs of the Founding Fathers and in the beliefs of subsequent justices sworn to uphold the Constitution. However, in the 1960s, a new group appeared on the court with a different set of personal values. They uncovered a statement which suited their beliefs, a misleading phrase found neither in the Constitution the First Amendment, nor any other official founding document. That phrase? Separation of church and state. But under the new application of this phrase, in 1962, in the case Engel versus Vital, school prayer was suddenly and without precedent ruled to be unconstitutional. Then the very next year, the court struck down another long-standing practice of public schools, a practice implemented by founding fathers like Benjamin Rush, Noah Webster, Samuel Adams, John Adams, Jedediah Morris, William Samuel Johnson and Thomas Jefferson. What was that practice? The use of the Bible in schools. So what do you think are some of the consequences of moving away from morality 
within our government leaders and with the church withdrawing its prominence in teaching and training our youth and our politicians and the population at large. We now know that the removal of religious principles from public life was accompanied by a national loss of internal self-restraint. Notice, for example, that violent crime, following extended years of low numbers, has now increased nearly 800% since the court ordered those principals be separated from students in 1962-63. We all recognize that today America has a serious crime problem, yet statistics now reveal that a significant percentage of all the crimes committed in the nation are committed by school-age youth, the very group prohibited from seeing religious teachings like don't steal and don't murder. Professor Barden, you have been fantastic. Really appreciate today. Can you summarize the entire hour presentation we've had in just a few words for our audience? Uh, Please, um, let us have your words of wisdom. Much of the blame for the condition of America rests on the shoulders of the good men, the church and people of faith who went to sleep and allowed the enemy to enter and to sow his tares. What then is the solution to reversing the trends of recent years? Jeremiah 6.16 teaches that if one wants the ways of peace, he should go back to the old paths. The founders made every effort to help us understand that government will always be a reflection of those who are involved in it. Whether it's executive policy, or whether it's congressional legislation, or whether it's judicial decisions, the acts of each of the three branches of government will always reflect the personal beliefs of those who are involved in those branches. For this reason, Christians and God-fearing individuals must get involved in government and, as all others do, we must carry our values with us. Further, we must elect to office those who embrace the timeless biblical values so important not only to the founders, but so vital to our own future as a nation. Dr. Barton, thank you once again to our audience. Please join us again on America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman signing off for Healthcare Insight. And at some point, we may get back to talking about free market health care. But until then, we need to continue to grow in our understanding of what's really happening in this country that prevents us from even getting to talk about free market when socialism, Marxism, and ideologies that are against all the things that many of us grew up believing in are challenged, addressed, and answered, and reversed. See you next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.